0: This episode was reproduced on April 27th, 2020. The Golden Rome, in its military might, is on the way down. No longer will the SPQR flag rule Europe as the enforcer of civilization and peace. Brought with problems and with barbarians encroaching on every border, the Roman Empire is about to witness its own gory end, drawn out over two brutal centuries. But Rome never fell at a steady rate or to one single cause, nor did the barbarian kingdoms in Europe spring up in such a straightforward fashion, as is often presented by popular belief. Rome's fall was complicated, troubled, and enduring, encompassing more than 200 years of economic damage, barbarian incursions, revolts, loss of territory, political upheaval, and so much more its demise ushered in the definitive shift in culture and politics that propelled Europe into the Middle Ages. Many medieval kings and leaders would fight to restore the Roman Empire in subsequent centuries, but no one succeeded conclusively. I shall first apologize on behalf of the medieval team that the original making of this episode was plagued with name mispronunciations, and that's why we have remade this episode. Secondly, I apologize that I have to glance over some details, as it is a huge challenge to condense so many years into a mere podcast episode. There are experts, far more knowledgeable than myself, who can offer a lengthier insight into the fall of Rome, and I encourage our more academic listeners to seek them out for a more solid history. Thank you. At this point, you won't have to know much about Rome. All you really need to remember is that we're in the Roman Imperium, and that the Empire is ruled by a single Supreme Emperor. For the past two centuries, Rome has enjoyed a period of relative peace and prosperity, experiencing issues only now and then. And it's about to end, because we've just ended the third century AD, and it'll be a little bit of a roller coaster ride from here. In this period, the Roman state plunges deep into what we call the 3rd century crisis, the first major civil conflict she has experienced in a very long time. The 3rd century crisis is characterized by several decades of near chaos, in which many traditional Roman morals were undermined, and the Pax Romana, or Roman peace, quickly broke down. There were signs of danger towards the end of the 2nd century, But this crisis will be the first stage in Rome's decline and eventual fall. In 235, the leader Severus Alexander was assassinated by his own soldiers in Germania, putting an end to the Severan dynasty. I'm bringing up the name of Severus Alexander because most historians like to use his death in 235 as a marker for the start of the crisis, or more specifically, a tyrannical and destructive five decades in which 50 emperors would rise and fall. One of the most dangerous problems Rome faced was the increasing power of the military and commanders in the army. It would give rise to numerous soldier emperors, or in other words, rulers that obtained their power through military brute or usurping. In the third century, you couldn't be an emperor without leading an army into battle. From Maximinian Thrax, the first soldier emperor and commander of the Fourth Legion, to Diocletian, who ended the crisis and offered 20 years of stability, the new decades will be riddled with internal strife, everyone at each other's throats, whilst barbarian tribes push in from the borders. One of the most important leagues in deciding upon new leaders was the Praetorian Guard or the Imperial Bodyguards, who were supposed to defend the Emperor. In the mid-3rd century AD, however, they seemed to enjoy killing their masters more than defending them. Now, they were quite ruthless. If they got bored or dissatisfied with one Emperor, they were more than happy to stick a knife in them. That goes for Roman soldiers as well. They were glad to support an emperor if he was winning all his military campaigns, and thereby making them rich. But if he was losing, or showed any signs of incompetence, they would quietly dispose of him without batting an eyelid. At this point, Rome loses its Augustan glory and traditional morals. Battles in ancient times were incredibly terrifying. They were noisy, crowded, and difficult to navigate. Imagine it. If you were fighting in a Roman legion, you would rather be led by a brave and victorious general who could lead you to defeat the enemy than a distant, tyrannical emperor thousands of miles away. Thus, you can't entirely blame the legionnaires for helping usurpers obtain power. It was completely natural for them to act like this, especially since the prospect of more barbarian invasion scared the living daylights out of them. In their act of trying to find a strong, trustworthy leader, and picking up some gold along the way. They instead just caused chaos and more weakness in the Roman state. Before we talk about barbarians, let's look at a quick story of a usurper. In 248 AD, with the state gripped by the crisis, an emperor called Philip the Arab ruled. The Goths, a barbarian tribe in the east, had just crossed the Danube River in the Roman occupied Balkans region of Moesia wreaking havoc on the province and forcing the Romans to defend their lands against this invasion. Philip was one of the most tolerant emperors to the new religion of Christianity. Well, it had been around for a couple of centuries, but was not legalized at this point. His general and advisor, Decius, was a strong pagan and, although the emperor was pagan himself, Decius did not approve of him tolerating the Christians. Anything that was considered untraditional would be looked down upon. Meanwhile, in Moesia, the legionnaires were getting bored, and instead of accepting command by a distant ruler, they decided that it would be fun to elevate a new leader, their general, Pacatianus. They essentially made him a usurper, one who takes power illegally or by force. Philip, back in Rome, had every reason to be concerned about this Pacatianus. He didn't hesitate to seek advice from his close advisor, Decius, commanding him to leave for Moesia to put down such a terrible rebellion of his own soldiers. But, by the time Decius had arrived at the Danube frontier, he found the legionnaire standing over the dead body of Pacatianus. They had killed him because he failed to destroy the Gothic tribesmen. Now, what's even more shocking is that instead of taking Philip back as their leader, The soldiers on the Danube proclaimed Decius, Philip's own friend, as their ruler. And to say the least, Decius didn't mind rising to this position. I can only imagine the anger on, not Emperor anymore, Philip's face. What a brutal story. The Romans had never had the perfect succession system, and the cruel 3rd century hunger for power led to several assassinations and usurpations such as these. I'd like to take a few minutes away from the 3rd century crisis to talk about the barbarian attacks on the Roman Empire and external threats during its decline. The constant shifting of power through the Roman Empire into a state of civil war, where one Roman Legion could be fighting another at any one point. And in war, it's very difficult to fight multiple enemies at the same time. Barbarian tribes had taken advantage of Rome's weakness to begin furious raids along the borders of Rome's frontier provinces. The Romans referred to anyone who didn't speak Latin as barbarians, because they believed their languages sounded muddled and unsophisticated, like a sheep. Ba, In its fall, Rome was failing to resist constant barbarian incursions into their territories, which degraded its borders over time. In short, the empire was fragmenting on all fronts. Most barbarian tribes were large unions, consisting of numerous smaller chieftains and warlords, that all seemed to be migrating in a common direction. The members and soldiers of these tribes were loyal to their local leaders. Some examples were the Marcomanni, Alamanni, Franks, Goths, Vandals, and lastly, one we'll talk more about in future episodes, the Huns. Due to regular and close contact with the borders of the Roman Empire, the barbarians probably became very advanced in war, which might surprise you. After all, you would assume that barbarians were unsophisticated and ruthless. But the Romans were just as pagan as they were. And there are numerous examples from recent archaeology that show some tribes, in particular the Goths, tried to replicate Roman art, jewelry, and crafts. And they accomplished this at a considerably high standard. The archaeologists who uncovered such artifacts initially believed they had been produced by the Romans. So there was clearly a strong relationship between the Romans on one side of the border and the barbarians on the other. Trade was common across the frontiers, but Rome was always aware that having barbarians so close to the empire would inevitably result in a disaster sometime. Along these frontiers, they built what are called limes, basically long networks of forts, walls, and other defenses. It's probably true that some tribes resented the Romans, but in general, they only wanted to share in Rome's wealth and land. In many cases the barbarians just wanted to buy Roman estates peacefully and were often willing to negotiate. At other more unfortunate times they could instead be very violent or just move in without a word. Rome wasn't just struggling against barbarian tribes in the west or those from the steppes. They also had to deal with the threat in the east dished out to them by the Persians or more specifically, the Sasanian Empire. The king of the Sasanian domain invaded Roman Syria in 253 and went to war with Emperor Valerian. Valerian's story is a sad one. He arrived in the east with troops, but was promptly captured by Shapur I and lived a life of captivity. Lactantius tells us that he was used as a footstool when Shapur was mounting his horse. He may also have been forced to drink molten gold. In this age, we start to see many of the characteristics of the Middle Ages. In 260, the governor of Germania Inferior, Postumus, took his lands and broke away from the Roman Empire. It was a huge blow for Rome. Postumus had founded the Gallic Empire and had no intentions of relinquishing it or engaging in diplomacy with the Romans. He believed that it was time for Gaul to defend itself, since the efforts of the Roman state at this time were pathetic. The Gallic Empire encompassed Gaul, France, and Hispania, Spain, as well as the most part of Britannia, Britain. Gallienus, the ruler at the time, was assassinated in 268 by his soldiers for his failure to defeat the Gallic Empire. His rule was not the best of time for Rome. In about 269 or 270, the Palmyrene Queen, Zenobia, invaded the Levant, Egypt and parts of Anatolia and broke away from Rome, setting up the Palmyrene Empire. This was particularly devastating for Rome because Egypt had a spectacularly productive grain industry, and now that it was under Zenobia's control, there were huge food shortages across Rome. The grain dole, which served out free grain to the poor, I would assume was dropped temporarily. Emperor Claudius, who replaced Gallienus, had it pretty bad in the East with Queen Zenobia, but he had success reclaiming Hispania from Postumus's Gallic Empire. Claudius was troubled in his reign by the invasions of the Alamanni, which was the first tribe in a very long time to cross the Alps into Italy. As we know, the Roman Empire was very weak at the time, all with the 3rd century crisis. The Alamanni quickly celebrated the loot and captives they had snatched from the Roman border. They enslaved men, women, and children. And the Germanic chieftains rewarded their loyal supporters with these Roman slaves and booty. Claudius, with the help of his trusted cavalry commander Aurelian, managed to destroy an Alemanni army grossly larger than his own. Half of the Alemanni force was destroyed. The other half quickly ran away, back over the Alps. Claudius managed to frighten the Alemanni away, but the Gallic Empire remained. It was too bad, because Claudius didn't live long enough to realize the Gallic Empire's destruction. In 270 A.D., he succumbed to a plague and was replaced by the military man and cavalry commander Aurelian. Aurelian was a soldier emperor who held the priority of unification close to heart. Immediately marching his troops into Gaul, he managed to defeat the Gallic Empire at the Battle of Chalon. But the celebrations were cut short because in 271 the Alemanni returned to begin ravaging Italy. Aurelian's army was initially routed, but with the valuable loyalty of his men, he managed to repel the Alamanni once again. This, however, did not prevent many Romans from leaving the city of Rome and fleeing to safer places. The rest you may want to know about Aurelian was that he abandoned the province of Dacia, as it was dangerous being beyond the Danube, and was eventually killed by his secretary, Eros. There were several more emperors Every one of them was murdered, except for Numeranius, who died a mysterious death. Before I continue and talk about the end of the 3rd century crisis under Emperor Diocletian, I'd like to address a rather important question. That is, what reasons did the Romans have for failing to defend themselves against the barbarians other than internal strife? In order to fight off the barbarian invasions, Rome had to raise a large army. Such an army would eat away at the imperial treasury, and thus it would need to be reimbursed for the cost. The Roman state would do this by taxes, of course. The only problem was that, since the Roman Empire had gotten so large, the aristocracy had gained control of enormous estates, making them very difficult to tax. Therefore tax collectors instead looked towards the poor, and demanded higher amounts of money from them driving many to bankruptcy and starvation. This in turn caused unease in the cities and those that could fled to the countryside to escape taxation. But with the empire beginning to shrink, a gap appeared between prices and income throughout the empire. This forced the state to cut down on the amount of silver in coins, causing inflation. The debasing of currency had been going on since the Severan dynasty but the soldiers had become gradually aware that they were being cheated. They refused to be paid in these worthless coins, and instead demanded gold. If they didn't get it, they would revolt, or not fight at all. It was especially risky since much of the army was now controlled and populated by Germanic warriors, known as Faux de Ratti. Rome, not wanting to miss out on a nice source of troops, loosened their recruitment policies and allowed Germanic warriors and officers into the legions, as well as the auxiliary units. In simple terms, the army was now more than ever dominated by barbarians. Okay, so back to the end of the 3rd century crisis and Emperor Diocletian. Diocletian came to power in 284 AD, and throughout his reign, he reformed tax policies, reorganized administration, and ushered in two decades of stability for the empire. Diocletian realized that he could improve the control over the empire by essentially dividing it into two and appointing a co-ruler. He chose a guy called Maximian, who handled the West, while he himself ruled the East. This was the very first splitting of Rome. He later instituted the Tetrarchy, which further broke the empire into four sections sort of. There would be two senior emperors, Augusti, who each adopted a subordinate ruler, a Caesar. If one of the senior emperors, or Augusti, died, he would be replaced by the correspondent Caesar. The new emperor would then choose his own Caesar. Moreover, Diocletian chose to move the Western Empire's capital to Mediolanum rather than Rome. Diocletian is always seen as the glorious emperor who saved Rome's life and offered a couple decades of stability. However, to my knowledge, he was mostly building upon the efforts and institutions of Aurelian before him. Diocletian is famous because he voluntarily abdicated and retired to his estate, literally preferring to grow cabbages than continue propping up the empire. However, the Tetrarchy quickly broke down. You don't need to know much from here onwards, but what happens is that an emperor called Constantine the Great ultimately came to power. He defeated his rival at the Battle of Milvian Bridge, where the vision of a cross in the sky converted him to Christianity. His rule was, in general, fairly stable. Perhaps the most important moment in his reign was the Edict of Milan in 313 AD, when he legalized Christianity. At this point, it wasn't the official Roman religion, but it was legalized. Constantine also moved the capital of the Roman Empire to a new city he built on the ancient Greek city of Byzantium. He called it Constantinople, or the city of Constantine. There'll be more on Constantine in our History of the Church episode. In the latter half of the fourth century, The Huns, a nomadic tribe from the eastern steppes, started to migrate west into Europe, pushing barbarian tribes up closer to the borders of the Roman Empire. It's 376 AD and the Goths have lined up on the banks of the river Danube, demanding entry into the Roman Empire. Valens, the emperor at the time, called shots on who would be let in and who wouldn't. He chose to only grant access to one tribe and not the other a way of flexing his authority and might. The Romans treated the refugee Goths absolutely atrociously. They packed them into cramped military camps and starved them, forcing many of them to sell their children for the offcuts of dog corpses. Within two years, the Goths had had enough. They wanted revenge, and they received it near the town of Adrianople, where a Gothic army under fritigem destroyed two-thirds of a Roman army in a mass rout, killing the Emperor Valens in the process. In the latter half of the fourth century, Theodosius was the last emperor to rule over a unified Roman Empire. He also made Christianity the official state religion, essentially banning paganism and all other worship. Many historians argue that Christianity was a contributing factor for the fall of Rome, But I beg to disagree. I think that the Christian idea of a single God gave the Romans something of a spiritual leader and a unity which helped them until the final day. It was undeniably, however, a huge culture shift away from the pagan past of Rome. Travel became dangerous in the 3rd and 4th centuries. Many communities became isolated. As the Roman Empire managed to maintain the majority of its landmass up until about 400 AD, the armies were spread out very sparsely across the provinces. The larger an empire grows, the more unsafe and unstable the communications and logistic networks become, because you must thin out your troop mass across a large area, meaning that patrols along roads are less common or farther apart. This may have been okay with the size of Rome's imperial army in a peaceful time, such as in Emperor Trajan's rule in the 2nd century, but the size of the empire and the size of the army were incompatible in the 3rd and 4th centuries, since most armies were rushed to the frontiers instead of securing the internal lands of the empire. This gave rise to criminal raids along transport routes, and you can imagine this would have been quite lucrative for pirates since materials had to be transported to the frontier along these unsafe roads, easily accessible to thieves and bandits. Since logistics and trade had broken down, people could no longer buy or afford clothes and food. They had to figure out how to farm the surrounding regions on their own. Plagues throughout this time also decimated the population of the Roman Empire. Some estimates suggest that the city of Rome dropped from 1 million inhabitants to 50,000. The Eastern Empire, meanwhile, was becoming very prosperous. The East had always been very urbanized, whilst the West depended on agriculture mainly, and that itself was decreasing. However, the Eastern Empire, which was speaking Greek instead of Latin at this point, could never bring its wealth and power to bear against barbarians in the north and west because it bordered the dangerous Sasanian Empire, which was a far greater enemy. The 5th century is often considered to be the closing stages of antiquity and the last time in which Roman ideology still prevailed in some form. Alaric, king of the Visigoths, was a man who had fought in the Roman army but had not obtained the rank or wealth he deserved. He was chosen by the Visigoths as their leader, and he had moderate success attacking the Eastern Empire under Theodosius' son, Arcadius. In fact, some of the Gothic conscripts of the Roman army switched to Alaric's side. He then moved to the west, where Honorius, brother to Arcadius, ruled. He besieged Rome in 401, but was driven back by the legendary general Stilicho. In response to Alaric's invasion, Honorius moved the capital from Mendiolanum to Ravenna, which was closer to the frontier, had better access to the sea, and was well defended. The empire had now lost its most iconic urban center, and consequently its national identity. Rome was practically deserted, and no longer the glorious capital it had once been. Alaric arrived at Rome in 410 and this time he broke through the gates with his hordes, sacking the city for several days and demanding a huge amount of gold and other resources from the Romans. Alaric was Christian, so he did not lay waste to the churches. Still though, it was terrifically devastating, and the empire just barely held on. Many questioned the loyalty of the general Stilicho because he was born of Vandal origin. I'm a fan of Stilicho, and I am rather sad that Honorius eventually decided to execute him. In the same year, Legio II Augusta, the final remaining army in Britain, was withdrawn and Honorius told the Britons to fend for themselves. And as if everything wasn't bad enough, a vandal migration under the mighty King Genseric decided to cross the Gibraltar straits and conquer North Africa in the 430s. I will not go into depth but I believe that the Vandals were oppressed by Roman and Visigothic attacks, and they decided to cross the Straits into Africa to find a new land and life. This was basically a shot in the leg for Rome, because a huge part of their grain was imported from this region. Furthermore, if North Africa had such a great agricultural community and output, then it must have had a decent population, and the more people you have, the more tax you can collect. The capture of North Africa by the Vandals would have resulted in a significant income cut for Rome. So yes, it resulted in another grain crisis and hunger in the empire. In the mid-5th century, the pesky Huns turned up. They were led by the ruthless conqueror Attila the Hun, who we'll look at in more depth in a future episode. The attacks of the Huns in the mid-5th century was essentially a last blow for Rome bringing it to its knees in terms of its social and political structure, military, finance, land, and morals. And so, that brings us almost to the end of the episode and the fall of Rome. The city was sacked again in 455, but the officially recognized end of the Western Roman Empire came about when Odoacer, a Germanic warrior and the first king of Italy, sacked Rome in 476 and deposed the 16-year-old emperor Romulus Augustulus, literally meaning Little Augustus. Orestes, a Roman general of the 5th century, had managed to replace Julius Nepos with his son Romulus, which is iconic because the 16-year-old shares the same name as the mythological founder of Rome. There was little resistance from Romulus Augustulus when Odoacer entered Rome, nor from the eastern emperor Zeno, who was forced to reluctantly accept Odoacer's rule over Italy. In truth, the Roman Empire had been collapsing for decades, if not centuries, and the late empire was nothing like what it had been in the Pax Romana. So, the Roman social and political system collapses, along with the Western Roman Empire. In the following years, many more barbarian kingdoms will rise across Europe and the first semblance of the feudal system will appear. Our following episodes take a look at the events after the fall of Rome, and how medieval Europe emerged from the wreckage. I encourage you to listen to those. Thanks for listening to Medieval Remade.